0: Welcome to a Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to Redemption'sHill.com. We're going to jump right into it. This is the second to last message uh, in the series, so we're getting really close. Uh, Hebrews, the 13th chapter, verses 17 through 19. Uh, one of the shortest texts that we will uh, cover in in this series. If you've read ahead, you know what it is. Uh, so here we go. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Did you know that's what it was? For they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure... Um, that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you, the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you sooner. This is uh, the word of the Lord for us today. Father, I pray that you would do your work in this. Um, Spirit, show us what was intended here. Help us to see through... um, just the oddness of viewing this text in the middle of our cultural moment. Let us see and trust and navigate this well. Um, So give us ears to hear. Give us wisdom. Lord, give me the words to say. We pray that in your name. Amen. So I'll just start by confessing to you. I don't know if it's a good way to start a sermon or not. Uh, So um, this is not my favorite uh, topic to preach on, uh, and not because I doubt the relevance or the truth inside of it or the importance of it, not because I don't know what it's saying or why it's saying it or how to communicate. All of that stuff is extremely clear. Uh, the reason that this isn't probably my number one pick or my favorite, if someone said, hey, pastor, will you come preach at our church? I'm like, I got it. That's where I'm going. That the, the reason this wouldn't be it is if I were to kind of straight shoot uh, shoot straight with you is uh, This is a scary text that forms a bit of anxiety in me in this cultural moment uh, to speak about the topics of authority and submission. It feels taboo. It feels polarizing. If you want to use the words of right now, it's, it's triggering for some. It's a topic that generates a lot of internet fodder and dialogue and anger and tweets and podcasts and fighting and books and just stuff. And... Uh, yet, despite how this text may uh, generate a bit of uh, a little bit of apprehension or anxiety in me, uh, we're going to dive into it anyway, because just like our member of covenant says, the, the Scripture is our foundation, it's our guide, it is our gauge, and it is the final arbiter of all things, meaning the Scripture is what kind of sets the point of what we do and how we do it. Not my feelings, you can say amen to that, and not your feelings, and I say amen to that or the current cultural fixations. The, the scripture is what sets the agenda. So I hope in light of whether you enjoy this text or not, you understand why exegetical preaching is good, right, and necessary, uh, because we end up kind of diving into the, to the full counsel of God. Uh, we'll dig into the easy stuff, the fan favorites, the obscure and odd things, and... Uh, the heavy, hard, and maybe sometimes contentious things. We, we we want we want to see every word the Father has to say to us. So before we dig into the nuts and bolts, I'm going to try my best not to give a TED talk, but I want to do a little bit of understanding why we're at, where we're at. And some of this information will come from a pastor's meeting that I had in Oklahoma earlier this year, uh, where Bob Thune kind of led a a, a dialogue that really helped uh, me and many pastors begin to kind of uh, nuance why we're in the moment that we're in. And it's probably no secret that something drastic has kind of happened Uh, something has happened to how we view authority, how we view institutions and our trust of institutions. And something has also happened to our relationships. And it can be felt, and maybe if we look at like the last 20 years of our history, we can understand, oh, maybe that's part of what did that. That's what we're going to try and do a little bit on the front side. The, the first observation that I'd ask you to, uh, to kind of see, and then I'll try and put some weight behind that afterwards, is we've experienced changes uh, in, in massive ways in three facets of our lives. We've experienced massive changes in the church. In ours and in other churches, in the in the church in large in the US, there's been massive changes. And then we've experienced massive changes in the in the culture, not just in the church, but in the land that we live in. In the two of those things, the changes in the church and in the culture have then filtered into and they've they've kind of changed our relationships as well. Changes in the church, changes in the culture, and changes in our Relationships. Some, some recent history that can maybe shed light on the front side, the changes in the, in the church would be to, to look at our last 20-ish years from 2005 to 2012, the church experienced uh, what was kind of a, a, a massive period of, of renewal and growth. Our church was planted out of that season and that move of renewal and growth. There was a boatload of missional churches planted in all places, in rural, in the sticks, in the suburbs, inner city, all over the place. There there were uh, gospel-centered churches uh, planted, missional churches planted, and there was an explosion all of a sudden of of, uh, gospel-centered resources in every element that you could ever think of. Gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered preaching, gospel-centered praying, gospel-centered pursuit of work. There was this This explosion of centrality of the gospel, this deepening of of, of theological richness all of a sudden became a a big thing, especially to young men who had been just kind of out of it for a long time. Even things like Christian publishers were sprouting out everywhere. All of a sudden, like Christian labels that were, were, were doing big things all of a sudden were taking off everywhere. And what I would want us to understand is in this cycle of renewal, we all had a little bit of a sense of traction momentum. It's happening. Look what the Lord's doing. There's, there's churches in and, and, and the language and, and, and resources, and we're pushing back darkness, and we're seeing church planted. We're seeing people being missional everywhere. We can be missional here and there, and people are planting churches in bars, and just everything is exploding. You're like, man, this is cool. Look what the Lord is doing. And then the next wave came, and it wasn't as cool. From after 12 to probably The present, after this cycle of renewal, we experienced something quite different. We experienced really what was wave after wave after wave of failures in the church from their leadership in a very, very, very public way. It seemed like one after another after another pastor imploded or failed in sin. There's sexual sin, hidden sin, financial impropriety, large-scale abusive leadership or harsh leadership or destructive leadership. You, you just kind of begin to, to wonder, who, who's next? You? You? Everywhere you're looking, prominent people are failing. We start even in our own house in 2014. The founder of the network that we are a part of, Mark Driscoll, was removed from his network and for pastoring for, uh, I mean, you could, a laundry list of stuff. Heavy leadership, harsh leadership, pride, anger, just a ton of stuff. He, he kind of was one of the first. Then Tolian Chavidian, if you remember him, the grandson of Billy Graham, he wrote Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He was speaking everywhere, he was all over the place. A massive church in Florida was, was exploding. It, it, was, it was great the way he was teaching all you need is Christ. And the reality is, all he thought he needed was Christ and his girlfriend that he wanted to leave his wife for. And that happened. Then Darren Patrick and Perry Noble, both about the same time, both of their churches and their pastorates imploded. James Noble, or uh, James McDonald, who was out in uh, Chicagoland, the leader of Harvest Church, all of a sudden financial impropriety, a bunch of lies, heavy handed leadership, he was kicked out. Then you had Ravi Zacharias, the, the beloved apologeticist. I mean, who didn't love that guy? We listened to him. We read his books. He was going all over the place speaking to the secular world about Jesus and how Jesus fits in, and he kind of encapsulated this kind of winsome spirit about it. It was, it was some fantastic stuff it looked like, but then all of a sudden he passed away, and it was found out that he had some of the deepest, darkest, sinful sexual habits that paying people off for years and years of horrific things. 2021, Carl Lentz. Hillsong, New York, dude always getting photographed with the beebs on Instagram without a shirt. Unfaithful to his wife, he's gone. Then you have the SBC sexual abuse cover-ups and the report of that in 2022. I bring all this to say, like, wave after wave after wave after wave of hit came And the effect of all of this, like these big-name pastors and local pastors uh, falling, one after another, they got caught doing terrible things. And even some maybe didn't do terrible things, but they got accused of terrible things, so they were believed to be guilty. The cumulative effect of these years of failure became a pervasive pervasive distrust of leadership and institutions in general. There was this, this belief that anything big or any type of power was going to fall because so many other people were falling everywhere. You pair that with the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast came out at around that time. It threw gasoline on the flame of distrust that was already spreading. All of a sudden, people who were maybe hurt or deconstructing or anything, all of a sudden, they were on a hunt for anyone who possibly was their Mark Driscoll. We had this large distrust, and it grew everywhere. What happened because of the distrust? Well, influencers with no theological knowledge became our teachers, Influencers with an axe to grind uh, became the people that others went to, to to listen to. The distrust in church and in biblical forms of leadership caused people to go outside to these new cynical leaders who were platformed everywhere and had loud voices, countless listeners, and your eyes need to be wide open. They had the motive of monetized messaging. They were getting rich off of being angry, and they had no checks and balances, and everyone listened to them. This trade was really significant, influencers for elders, and the forum for all the teaching and the listening and the hearing became the internet and and not the local body or the church. You kind of pair COVID and, and virtual church with that, and it got even worse. Massive changes in the church, large form distrust. On top of the changes in the church we experience, cultural changes. Some recent cultural changes in the U.S. in that period of time, we had the Obergefell ruling over same-sex marriage. Many people had no realization how important that would be to create the moment that we're in now. We had the polarizing Trump elections, and if you didn't get enough then, you got the tweeting presidency that he lived out after that. Then you had Caitlyn Jenner kicking off the, the trans and the sexual fluidity uh, movement in our world, where it also was a guy who called himself a girl, one woman of the year, and we all had to decide what we would do with that. We had the COVID era with truth wars, rival factions, conspiracy theories. We had George Floyd and defund the police after Black Lives Matter had caused a lot of people to fight. We had critical race, everything. We have Roe versus Wade and abortion over and over and over again. We had these things that caused us to war. Not only did the church experience inside the walls a change of pervasive distrust... Now in the culture, it became angrier and more divided than ever before because all of these heavy cultural moments that came at us and these cultural changes pushed people away from other people. See, the polarization, it did this. Have you ever seen this? You go to crowds of people that agree with you and you cut off people who don't. Even churches partner less because of this. Theological lines that were okay to navigate in now became mountains to die upon. I've sensed this one, and it hurts. Old friends who you disagreed, you no longer are friends. We're more disconnected than ever before. So from a 30,000-foot view, what are we trying to point out? Leadership in the church became marked by distrust. New leaders with loud voices who weren't necessarily shepherds were accepted to teach everyone. The culture had wave after wave of of controversy that divided people into tribes and silos, so we became distrusting, and we became Lonely, angry, and quite isolated. Now, I realize that this is a generalization, but I think we all felt this in varying degrees. Despite the, the maybe oversimplification of it all, I, I think we felt the realities of that. Maybe you didn't have words to put on it, but felt the realities of what came our way in the last year. If we hold on to those progressions in in, in what has happened in the current moment, and then we also pair with that together, the government and how the government leads and how we've accepted their leadership, I think we can make even more headway here. Shed more light of why we're at where we're at right now. Early on in the church history, government offered up security for your freedom. This began by protecting our borders. In the early day, we became our own country, and we need to, to, to protect the borders and make sure that we weren't get, going to get invaded and be destroyed. In the beginning, they gave you this. Freedom was, I will protect you. Then it moved towards maybe the next 70 or 100 years later. The, the government ended up giving us law and order because things were like the wild, wild west in our country. I'm going to help you be free so that you can own property and keep property and not get murdered. Freedom was equated with the ability to to live without being killed and the the freedom to have uh, the ability to purchase land, keep land, and possibly forge for yourself some sort of life. The government was trying to give that to the people. If we fast forward into our present moment, though, we see that that has shifted a little bit. The government now protects or gives or tries to uh, procure freedom in a much different way because freedom is now viewed differently than it was viewed before. Freedom in our modern era is not protection of being able to have land or not worry that you're going to be invaded by a foreign country or be able to keep what you have. Now, all of a sudden, freedom is considered the good life. Well, what's considered the good life? Well, you're free when you have the good life, and the good life is unlimited personal choice of whatever you want and the destruction of any restraint of what you don't want. That's now what freedom in the good life is, and this is what our government deals in. The government largely tasks themselves with offering people the unlimited choice of what they want while, while promising them to pull away any of the restraint that they don't want. If you think, man, this sounds political... I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. This is not touting a side. I'm not going to say ipso facto, in the election, surprise, go this way. Both sides play this exact same game. Now, some may offer you a different version of a limited choice, and some may focus on other angles of restraint that they're trying to remove, but right, left, both sides, no matter which way you want to go, they're playing the exact same game where they believe that leadership is offering people more of what they want and taking away all the things that they don't want. Why are we bringing this up? Because this view of leadership offering freedom through choice and the elimination of restraint has subconsciously been placed over and on top of church leadership as well. The government and the way that we want them to lead has turned into the way that people want the church to lead. That makes it really, really, really hard, if not impossible, to reconcile reconcile today's text with real life. If we view in subtle forms or we've co-opted this modern view of leadership that they are supposed to expand every choice that you want, offer you more choice, limit the things that you don't want, then you will not have ears to hear here, views 13. You'll have no context to be able to deal with it. And I'll back all the way out one more time. If it's actually true that leadership in the church is viewed with distrust or doubt often, if many influencers or social uh, people that you will never see have, have begin begun to, to teach people over uh, the internet and lead them, if cultural events have caused us to be angry or frustrated, and more divided than we have ever been before, or at least in our generation, to where to where we're in small groups of tribes that we agree with, if we prefer and lean into leaders who give us all the things that we want that we want and take away all the things that we don't want, then it'll be hard for you to ever to accept this type of leadership, and it'll be almost impossible for you to actually to function in or live inside of this type of leadership, which creates a tension point that we have to acknowledge and we need to make a decision over. The tension point just becomes this in light of a a very short text. Will I accept a God-given form of leadership? Will I obey God by submitting to the leadership that he placed over me? Or will I allow history, cultural conditions, preference, a a bad scenario to give me license to recreate the way that I am led in my faith based on what I want now or what I see in culture? It's important to realize this, that the Old Testament all the way through modern days, the Bible warns people from the beginning until now and all the way until Christ returns That people will appoint for themselves leaders who will give them the message they want to hear and will lead them in the way that they want to be led. And it says that God will let this take place. And do you know what it's called? It's called judgment. It's God's judgment for people rejecting him. So it's entirely possible uh, for, for people to have a type of leader over them that doesn't speak the word to them doesn't call them to obey the Lord, doesn't ask them to submit their lives or lay their lives down like Christ has. It, it doesn't say hard things or ever kind of correct. And the people will applaud and they'll love and they'll cherish it and God will let it stand. They will think it's the greatest thing in the world and they'll have no idea that God detests it. And he lets them have it as a form of wrath and judgment. Our hearts, I hope we can come to the word and go, God, God, what type of leadership do you want for us? And I'm just talking about me. All of our lives are under certain leadership in our local church. Yes, it's going to be our elders, but will we all accept the leadership that the Lord has placed or will we kick against it constantly? If we remind ourselves of what the 13th chapter of Hebrews is, I think it will help us understand these verses some more. This chapter is application. It teaches us how to follow Jesus. The whole book People were thinking about leaving. The understanding is in the 13th chapter, if you're going to follow Jesus, even if it causes you tension, even if it walks you into persecution or hardship or loss of opportunity or anything like that, all of the 13th chapter is saying is if you're going to stick in and lean into Christ, no matter what it brings your way, here are some things, some proverbs and some rules that you're going to need to place over your life in order to follow him well in the middle of that decision. It started with what to love. Hey, if you're going to follow Jesus well, you're going to have to fight hard to love certain things. And then you're going to have to fight hard to not love certain things that your flesh is going to want to hold on to. Then it moved into, you're going to have to remember certain things. If you're going to follow Jesus well and hold to him, in a world that loves to reinvent themselves and reinvent new truth, you need to hold to the very old gospel. Look at the faith of leaders before you. Even more so, look at the unchanging Jesus and hold to the gospel. Then it points to association. Hey, be careful. Don't let your association or your connection with Jesus wane in the public sphere if it's going to cause you scorn. Instead, lean into Jesus. Identify with him in the good stuff and in the hard stuff. Meaning, identify with him in his redemption, but also identify with him in his shame and in the rejection that he felt in the world. Hey, how do I do that? says, okay, well, praise him with your lips. That's one way. Then praise him or lean into these things by pursuing good as you live and then lean into things by sharing your life instead of hoarding it. Today in the text is just another addition to this application. What's another way that we lean into Christ and accept uh, what he has done for us? We do it by accepting the leadership that he has placed over us, by obeying the leaders over you and submitting to their direction. I want to show us that this is just another part of application. To hopefully show you that this directive isn't some like random terrible thing that he snuck in at the end and hoped that we wouldn't notice. It's, it's meant to be one of several different elements that will help you walk out your faith in Jesus well. In other words, when it says to obey and submit to leadership, it's not meant to be a punishment. It's actually meant to be a benefit and a gift. Hey, this is a good thing. It's going to help you follow Jesus. It's going to help you end well. It's going to help you kind of keep your focus in the middle of just a crazy race. Now, all of that was to kind of dig into the text and say, what does it say? What does the text mean when it says obey your leaders and what does it mean when it says to submit to them? What are those words trying to tell us to do cuz maybe you hear obey and submit and you're like oh, I don't know I'm not going to do that or maybe it just kind of bothers you or maybe you were hurt before and you're going I I just don't think that I can do that out of out of self-protection what does it mean to obey and submit well the first thing we need to understand is the who the leaders that it's speaking to in this text are are the pastors and the elders Specifically, it's going to refer back to, to chapter 13, the, the ones who are teaching you the word of God, which would be the, the elders, are, are the ones that you're supposed to obey and submit. The big picture, the profound aha in Hebrews, is it's all pointing to the need to keep following Jesus. It's a call to see Jesus as the the trailblazer, the one who has made the way, the one who's carved the trail, cut the path. He's the one who has made a way, and as his followers, we literally follow him down the path that he made into the presence of God as redeemed people and new creations, and we worship forever, and one day he'll come and he'll fix everything broken. You just got to follow the path. Jesus is the forerunner, the trailblazer. It's him and him alone. In the original language, when it speaks of leaders in the text here, the original language is pointing to those who go before you and who lead the way. So the picture would be this. Jesus carved the path for all believers to be saved and to follow him. Then he gives the church leaders who lead lead, not by creating their own new path, but they lead by walking people down the path that Jesus made before them. This is the ones that go down the path and say, hey, sheep, members, follow me. Not because I have it figured out. Follow me as I follow Jesus. This is the way. This is what he has carved. Come, let's chase our Savior together. This is the way. Imagine maybe a trail in a thick forest at night. When it's talking about an elder and one who goes before you, what it's trying to get you to see is maybe the leader who goes with a torch into the night, helping you stay on the path of Jesus. A pastor is not your Savior they're not your king, they're not your dictator, and they're definitely not your mama or your daddy. They're simply the ones that God has charged to show you the path that Jesus made. My job is to help you keep following his path. I don't love the rendering of the ESV here when it uses the word obey, and maybe it's out of cultural condition. I also don't want to escape it, because it's not like, oh, it doesn't mean that. Well, it kind of does, but there's nuance to it. So we may think of when we hear obey of the relationship of a slave and a master, or maybe we think of uh, the, the, the police uh, and a citizen, right? Where, where it's kind of uh, expected that a subordinate has no power, uh, and that every single thing that, that the superior asked them to do, like when they say jump, you say, sir, how high? And then you jump and say, yes, sir, may I have another? And that's not at all the type of obey. Some maybe power-hungry people have taught it this way. That's not what they're saying here. The word rendered as obey actually means to rely on, to trust, and to depend on. For all things, no for the path. It conveys the idea of a people who have a heart that are kind of leaning in with their ear to to hear and be led by another, a a heart that desires to to hear, to listen, and values the direction. I want want to make sure I'm hearing what you're saying because you're trying to keep me on the path, so I'm kind of going to lean into that. Your leaders are meant to be the ones who speak over you, not to dominate you, but they hopefully earn your trust by pointing to the path of Jesus, and you listen because you want to stay on the path. This obey is, is a heart that values the guidance of another and listens to their direction as they go. When it says submit to, then the idea would be the humility to do more than just listen. The first has an element of, of hearing and a heart that kind of leans in. I want to I take in the words that you are saying. The, the, the second has a different uh, angle to it. I will listen to the words that you will say, but then I'll actually follow them as you lead me down the path that Christ has set forth. If we keep seeing the imagery here, leaders leading us down the path of Christ, uh, submit to them would be uh, when a leader goes, hey, you're going the wrong way. Hey, this, this sin or this thing has caused you to, to, to take a hard right and you, and you missed the, the, the path or, or you're not seeing Jesus clearly and, and you're not seeing the path that he's walking you down. The leader is the one who goes, you need to turn around. You, you need to come back this way. To, to submit is the humility to be able to go, hey, I may take the wrong path sometimes and I will listen to them with the Scripture being my gauge, and if they have the right point and are calling me back to the path, in humility, I'll accept the correction to turn. To submit is allow a person to lead you by correction at times. Here's the hard nuance. A lot of people will will do the obey part. I'll give you my ear, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll listen until you actually ask me to submit, and then I'm out. I love to hear you until you say something or call me to turn in a way that I don't want to, to do and then I'm done. We need to make sure that the understanding is is, is twofold, and, and a heart that that has an ear that leans in. I'm gonna. I'll, these people are here to try and lead me. I don't want to hear. And then humility is sometimes to again weigh it with the word, but turn if you need. We get so jumpy at the language of obey and submit and authority, probably because we see them in a negative light or through the lens of a bad example that maybe we had or somebody that we knew had or we read about it on. Who knows where? Sheep and church members are not called to ask for leaders' approval for everything they do. We throw that out as kind of ground-level stuff. There aren't meant to be uh, the leaders who make your life plans for you either. If a leader tries to force you to obey in an area that has no bearing on your faith or on the path if they begin to try and make a member submit to to their area of preference surrounding an issue of opinion that has no grounding in the word or that the Bible is silent upon, then that elder or leader has stepped outside of the boundary of their calling and they're not leading you down the path of Christ, they're leading you down the path that they created. At this point, you have have no need to listen. You're taking me towards your preference and not Jesus. Leaders take people towards Christ. Christ. question, maybe. Okay, why? What's my motivation? We, we've talked about it a, a decent bit. And we're in a weird moment. It's a beautiful thing that there's so many gospel-centered churches, and there's places that are not, but we were never meant to have 800 churches in one location. Because what it's created is when when an elder calls someone to turn, and we're going to go under some assumptions. I know people have done bad things. I get that. But many times when an elder says, hey, you're missing the path, come back towards the path of Christ. What does somebody do? There's another place three blocks away, man. I'm out. It wasn't meant to be that way. So we need to understand and read this text with that type of uh, understanding in mind. They're meant to be able to lead you back to the path of Christ, and you're not meant to be able to go like, well, I don't like you, and, and, and go. But what's the motivation, though? If you're not meant to jump everywhere, what's the motivation to to obey and submit? And the text deals with that head on as well. Because leaders are keeping watch over your soul. They don't judge you. They definitely don't save you. But they're trying to the best of their ability, if they're honoring the call that God has placed over them, to keep watch over your soul. Why? To keep you on the path. That means leaders aren't more saved than you. They're not more holy than you. They're not more enlightened than you. They don't have some sort of supercharged, varsity, uh, first-tier connection to God that you don't have. They simply have been given a job by God to watch out for your soul. What does that mean? That means that you may spend 40 hours or 50 hours or whatever you do at a vocational job doing something else, uh, to, to earn a paycheck, and elders are, are, are spending a, a part of their time, I get it, like for us, we have vocational and non, but they're spending some of their working and focused hours trying to lead you down God's path. There's an intentional time going, hey, how, how do we show them the path of the Lord? How do we keep them on the path of the, the, the Lord? When we're talking about motivation, you, you get to, to work and do life, and there's other times that leaders over you are trying to, to keep you in the right spot to watch out for your soul, Again, the, old, uh, the original language is helpful to the text here. When it says keeping watch, in the original language, what you're supposed to think of is a night watchman over a city or over a gate. right? Back in, in chaotic days when there's wars and invasion and stuff like that, that's what you're supposed to think of, of a watchman keeping up. Elders are those who lose sleep to try and make sure, while other people are doing things that they would prefer that you are safe from danger and wolf and enemies and stay on the path of Christ. At times people say, man, it just seems unfair that leaders have the power and absolute power always corrupts and and the church members have to submit or listen and obey to them as as if leaders get some sort of unfair benefit and members get shortchanged and they get nothing good out of the arrangement. But this text says elders are those who lose sleep watching out for your soul They're battling in the night when you get to sleep. And then look at the other wording if we think the whole thing's unfair. They watch out for believer's soul. Hear these terrifying words as it's those who will give an account over how they watched over you. The message is leaders aren't a special breed of believer. They're those tasked to watch over you to keep you on the path. And they will answer to God himself on how they did it. We see in the scriptures they will literally be judged more strictly because of that role. So if they mail in their job, if they stop watching out for the sheep, if they kick the sheep, you got to address it. Here's a thing that we need to understand: if you've been hurt by leaders, us or others. What this scripture is telling us, if it's been glossed over or ignored or if it's been legitimate and you're going, nobody cares, where is my justice? This scripture says God will bring it all back. Nobody gets away with anything. You may not feel like you've received justice or you're treated fairly or any of those other things. We saw this in Romans. There will be this day that God is the good judge. Nothing will be able to be shoved back into the closet and shut the door. Everything will come out and he will dress everything, even bad leadership. This means that leaders aren't those who don't have to obey and submit themselves. They're given the job by the Lord through the calling to lead, and they're called to obey and submit to the Lord through his word, and they are under the authority just as anyone else is, right? If if a leader does their job wrong, if they kick the sheep, if they fleece uh, the flock to get what they want, if they turn the church into the people who do all the things to make their life what they want it to be, God will judge them for it. Nobody gets away with anything. It's a sobering text for leaders and elders and anyone ever thinking of it. And also ones who think it's unfair. Verse 17 adds, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. If a leader is complaining, hates the sheep and whines about them. And I hear people say it at times, like, I don't know if that's okay. Like, church would be great, like pastors. Church would be great if it weren't for the people. Like, I don't think you should say that. Yeah, things can be hard sometimes, but if people are leading through begrudging submission and a chip on a shoulder, and I hate this, the text is just going, that's no good to you. It'd be no good to the church. So there's kind of an interesting give and take push here. Believers obey their leaders and submit to them. They do it without groaning and throwing mini fits and tantrums because they know that their elders are, are, are leading and given the job for their good to help show them the path. And then leaders do that job without complaining and and groaning, but out of gladness because God has called them to do it. Why? So this church can be strengthened and protected. Ultimately, so the church can stay on the path of Christ. This means a believer can dishonor God by rejecting the authority that he has placed over uh, them with their leadership, and a leader can equally dishonor God by rejecting uh, his authority and by becoming negligent or, or complaining and whining about their leading all the time. What does this mean? It means both groups are still under the authority of the Father. And God's authority is meant to be for leaders and for members for their good he's not a crude he's not a, a a crude and terrible and, and and mean tyrant of a father he places things over us as boundaries to help us i realize that there have been and will continue to be bad leaders around this text is asking us not to throw the baby out with the bathwater though and then just on a heart level to to say this whether it's me to uh Side, I don't know if this is helpful. Like, I have to submit to our elders too. It's not like, well, who do you submit to? Like, I get told no. Blake's good at it sometimes, right? Like, we're, we're, all kind of, we're all kind of in this. What we can end up doing is take the example of other leaders, or maybe even if we have messed up at some point, and use that when there is a viable time that somebody goes, hey, brother, you're missing the path. They go, like, I don't need to listen. This text is asking us, hey, please don't let situational things or the fodder in the culture or even a bad experience at some point or or even a point that one of us have sinned cause you to to overthrow or cast away if God is trying to protect you back towards the path. Again, the whole point is to keep you on the path. Guys, we all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to lean in and follow Jesus all the way. So yes, it's true that leaders have done terrible things and there have been bad leaders. But remember that it was, it was leaders invoking the, the, the name of God the Father himself who yelled crucify him so that Jesus would die. And yet despite that, this text was still written. What does that mean? Bad leadership doesn't make God go, that was a terrible plan, we don't want to do that again. Leaders have failed and will continue to fail. God tries to gift his people leaders who keep them on the path, though. This is probably why we should understand that the qualifications of an elder are important, though. Right? Because we don't want to just throw anybody up there and set ourselves up to, to fail. This is why the, the wording of leaders is in the plural and not the singular. Eldership is meant to be a plurality of men and not done by only one man. You're not meant to only have a CEO or a president or, or, or anything like that. This is meant to ensure safeguards for the church. It is not implausible for a man to get things wrong or fall into to sin. Even a good one in, in a plurality is meant to be the checks and balances. If someone gets off for another one to go, hey, brother, you're not seeing that right. That's why these qualifications in a plurality are a big deal. In a world obsessed with autonomy that is systematically rejecting authority at every turn, the church is called to not refuse it. As a way to keep you on the path, but also as a way to worship God in a broken way world. Guys, if you just step back and look, our world is trying to destroy and eradicate every form of authority there is. I not want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but look at a lot of the modern movements of parenting. Let the kid lead themselves. What is that? A destruction of authority. Mm-hmm. So many people work remote. You can't see me. No authority there. People are used to church hopping if things go bad. And we, we kind of all stopped trusting a lot of the government authority a while ago. You need to pay attention to that. At every single spot, the world is trying to tell you authority is bad. Authority is bad. Authority is bad. And there's a way that we can worship the Lord by going, I trust you. Not I trust TJ or Blake or Garrett. God, I, I I trust you and I will lean into authority because I believe that you are a good God. Hopefully in humility, I try and remind you that following leaders in the church is meant to be a blessing and a gift. Why? Because leaders are meant to point you to Jesus. I went on a vacation. I was gone for less than two weeks and Garrett kind of shared the same sentiment with me. When you get out alone and by yourself and no rhythm, it's really easy to get crazy. It's, it's really easy to feel untethered. I don't know if you've ever just like not had anything to do or just got out on your own. All of a sudden, you're like, I'm making some weird choices. Eldership is supposed to be just the ones who call you back when that happens. It happens in life. It's meant to be a gift. I joked with him a little bit before. Like, what's the sermon about? I'm going to tell the church, hey, you're welcome for the gift that God gave you. Like, The hope is that you would see it as good as people who love you enough in a world where authority is not popular to sometimes take authority to call you back to Jesus. Believers trust God by following the leaders that he has placed over you. Then the charge at the end makes a lot of sense. It's a call to pray. The author calls for prayer for himself as a personal request, but he's also asking for this as, as, as a back and forth in all churches. Members, pray for your leaders so that they stay on the path themselves and they act honorably. Just like you want to have the well done, my good and faithful servant, so so do they. And and, and they want to act rightly in the eyes of the word and hear the voice of the Lord and they want to stay on the path of the Lord and help you stay on the path of the Lord. Pray for your leaders. It's a hard job, he's trying to say. Pray for them to see the Lord to help lead you well. As we wind down, I want to give you a little bit of a preview of the text next week. And yet there's a beautiful benediction where the author declares, Church, Christ has given you everything you need. All the stuff that he did on the cross, the resume, the redemption, the, the love, he's given you everything that you need. And then he's even placed these other things in your life to help you do the will of the Lord and glorify him forever. My hope is just that we'll see church leadership as one of these extra things that Christ gives his people to help them do the will of the Lord. As a good gift that empowers us to do the will of the Lord, finish well, push back darkness, and continue to see Jesus. In a world that seems to hate leaders, faithfulness is to Jesus is to accept them in some regard. Have eyes wide open. If we ever leave the path ourselves, please Run. But if a leader calls you to the path of Jesus, worship Jesus by hearing what they say. Keep your ears open to them and a heart open to the ability that, hey man, I could get it wrong and they may need to tell me to turn back to the path and have the humility to actually submit when that happens. This is meant to be a help and a benefit and a blessing to you. I would just tell you one of the things that's a joy for us here. You know, People have asked about discipline and submission and different things like that. One of the beauties of the reason to be in true community and missional community is a lot of times an elder doesn't ever have to ask you to submit because you have other people walking in your life who are like, hey, bro, what's that? And doesn't even ever get there. Like, that's a good and great gift and a reason to lean into the people around you. And so we don't always have to get to the end of the spectrum where, where an elder's going, you better submit or else... It, We have people who are watching out for us, who call us back to to Jesus. That's a a good way to see even your role. I want to keep people on the path, too. Maybe I don't yell at people to submit or things like that, but, man, my heart loves that person. I'm going to call them back to Jesus. MCs are a great forum for that. You can share your heart when you're struggling, have people see your struggle and and point it out to you so that you can stay on the path. I won't drown you in application. I would say the MCs have done a good job in this, and I believe and I'm thankful that I think a good. I think you guys do this well of, of listening to the eldership. But I just ask you low-hanging fruit couple questions. Is your heart open to being led? In that open to being led, is your heart and your life open to be challenged if it ever happens? And the other thing I'd ask you is, have you thought about how you talk about leadership? How even the mindset of counter culturally speaking about leadership and eldership is a good thing may help those around you who aren't even in our church. I'm not asking you to like make up a good story about me or Blake or Garrett or things like that but there's an element of wisdom and res- and receiving the leadership of the Lord when you are at the water cooler or some other place and people are just bashing other churches and other leaders you go like hey man I'm thankful for leaders or maybe if you have a, an element where it was helpful to go, man, I had a leader care for me and pull me back to the path of Jesus here. And I'm thankful for that. I'm sorry you went through that, but I don't have the same experience of you. There's, there's a way that we can kind of turn the, the tide when the world loves to destroy and bash and hate for you to go like, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You don't have to pretend that everything is rosy, but man, you can honor the Lord by reframing some conversations out in the world. We love to complain. Maybe you just don't jump into that, and that honors the Lord. Because you don't have to wait till a call to submit to see if you think that this text is true. Even the way you speak frames this. One last thought. I think you've done well with this, and I ask you to keep this in mind. One of the areas that I see in not receiving eldership in a biblical form, I think, is to recreate the job. So I tell you, in a a way to hear and submit and obey, one thing to keep in mind is I I believe that many people have tasked elders to do jobs that aren't keeping people on the path, meaning they want a life coach or uh, an encourager or someone to parent their kids or all of these other things. And they'll receive those things from their leaders, but they won't receive someone asking them to stay on the path. I would just say, hey, would you have your heart open to make sure that you never get those things crossed? The primary job of an elder is not to fix everything in your life or even to be your counselor per se. It's to keep you on the path of Jesus. Be careful of a heart that calls eldership to do something that God didn't so that you can refuse what he actually wants them to do. I think you've done well in that, but I think bears remembering in the, the future because I've seen this recreated all over the place. So what do we do with this? And in light of, uh, of leadership and obeying and keeping us on the path, we'll end up worshiping and we'll come to the table. Why? It's another way to go back to the path. It's another way to go, hey, all of this is to lead us to the finished work of Jesus. It's not to create certain uh, power structures that make other people do certain things. We're just trying to remember Christ. And so we'll hear these words as, as a teaching, ask the Lord to help us see them when in right light when we need, and then we'll go to the table going, Father, thank you for what you've done through Jesus. You've given me everything that I need. You've given me every good gift to do the will of the Lord, to rest in what he has done. Help me to continue seeing it over and over and over, and you get to take. Remember that the Lord is good, and Jesus has done it all anyway. Man, you guys can come back up. as You're ready to take communion. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. uh, Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we'll end by playing... uh, Three songs, and you get to lean into what Hebrews has told you. A way to lean into the Father is to the fruit of your lips, to speak and to sing the goodness of what he's done, to contemplate the beauty of what he's done, and then come to the table again. Whether you've had a great week or a, table, or a terrible week, whether you've been in the Word or you've struggled there, whether you feel close to the Lord or far away, you get to come to the table and go, it is your body and your blood. You have first loved me, and you've proved it through what you've done, and you come and you take Friends, I pray that this would be everything to us, that it would nourish your soul. Jesus has done so much, and he cares for you mightily. Hopefully, we can see he puts people in your path to call you back at times if you begin to forget that. Hopefully, that'll be what eldership is here, and ultimately, we'll just keep looking at King Jesus together. I pray that your heart is encouraged and stirred in Christ, and you see the beauty of him.